Good morning. Add my welcome to you. My name is Ryan Chase. I'm another one of the elders here, and it's a privilege to stand before you, even virtually like this, and declare the Word of God. God's Word is powerful, and it's active, and we trust that His Spirit works uh, and is not bound at all by this technology or distance, and so we are grateful that God communes with us. He meets with us. He has fellowship with us, as Logan prayed so powerfully because of what Jesus has done. I'm going to go out on a limb this morning and make an assumption that every single one of you has had, at some point or another in your life, a superior, somebody over you in life toward whom you felt and most likely showed some kind of disrespect. Would that be fair to assume? Have you ever had a boss or a manager or a supervisor, a teacher, a professor, a coach, at least you could think of a parent, with whom at one point you disagreed, and probably you consider that person at times harsh or unreasonable, maybe even incompetent and unqualified to be in that position. So that's a common experience that we have all had. But what if I told you that that person, who may actually have been inept and unkind, that person and their problems was never actually your problem. Your problem has been, it was and it is, your problem is always you, yourself. And that's both bad news and good news. It's bad news because you have a problem. I have a problem because you are the problem. I'm, I'm the problem. It's good news because Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15. And that doesn't mean merely taking sinners to heaven when they die. It means regenerating them, justifying them, transforming them and sanctifying them, preserving them, perfecting them and glorifying them. And that's good news because it means you're not stuck. You're never stuck. If you are under somebody who is harsh and unkind or unreasonable or whatever, you're not stuck in misery until that miserable boss changes. You're only stuck in misery until you change. And change in you is possible by the grace of God, which overflows for you and toward you with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, 14. So the question is, how does that happen? How does that change occur when we feel those deep-seated feelings of resentment or disrespect? How does God change attitudes toward those above us from attitudes of annoyance or contempt or resentment or frustration into attitudes of respect and honor? Well, first, He inspired his holy and authoritative word. He speaks to us through his word so that we can know him and what his will is for us. And through that word, his spirit works in us to change us. And that's the word that he has for us this morning in 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. So this is God's word. It's true. It is without error. It is pure. It revives the soul. And so out of our honor and high regard for God and his word. I want to invite you to stand with us if you're able as I read 1 Timothy 6, 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke 
as bondservants, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed again by the reality that you speak, that you are not silent, that you have not left us in the dark, but that your word is a light that illuminates the path before us, and that you speak to every aspect of our lives, and you have spoken every divine word that we need for all of life, for godliness, through our knowledge of you, the one who has called us by your own glory and goodness. So thank you for your precious and very great promises. Thank you for your word, which corrects us and rebukes us and encourages us and by your grace transforms us. Let your word have its effect on us this morning. Give us ears to hear, hearts to believe. Give us hands to obey by faith all that you say, that you might be exalted in us and in this world you made and love and are in the process of saving to the praise of your grace forever. Amen. Wherever you you are, you can take a seat. So before we can begin to apply any passage of scripture to our own lives, we have to understand what the author meant and who his audience was. In this text, we have to be clear about who it was that Paul was talking to and what he was saying to them. So in these verses, Paul is instructing Pastor Timothy in Ephesus, giving him specific instructions for believers in the household of God, how they were to live their lives. And in these two verses in particular, he's now giving Pastor Timothy specific instructions for Christians, quote, who are under a yoke as bond servants. So he's talking about slaves, Under a yoke was a a common way of referring to slaves in the Roman Empire. One commentator explains that the phrase stresses the harsh social and existential reality of the person who existed as the property of another, which is a thought that's incredibly difficult, if not impossible for us to even comprehend. We can maybe begin to imagine, but to comprehend that, we have not experienced that in our lives. The fact that Paul's talking to slaves is made doubly clear by his use of the word translated here, bondservants. It comes from the Greek word doulos, which can refer to a whole wide range of laborers from slaves who had absolutely no rights at all to servants who had some degree of freedom. In Rome, slaves occupied all kinds of different positions. Some slaves were architects, artists, musicians, teachers, physicians. Others were assigned to much more harsh and inhumane jobs, brutal labor, maybe in the mines or the fields. Some were even relegated to fighting in the Colosseum. So that word covers a whole range of people, and Paul's talking to all of them. Look again at verse 1. Paul is speaking to all who are under a yoke as bondservants. All of them. So he's not differentiating those who are in relatively comfortable positions, He doesn't say this doesn't apply to those of you in more difficult situations or with more miserable masters over you. He's speaking to any Christian who was a member of the church in Ephesus who was in this position as a slave 
in the Roman Empire. His instructions are for all of them, from those in the most miserable conditions to those living in the pleasant ones. And if Paul's instructions applied to Christian slaves and their work under a master whom they did not choose, then we can reason that these instructions apply to us. They apply to you and your work under a boss or a supervisor whom you do have some say in that matter, whether or not you work there, whether or not you find a new job. If it applied to slaves in the Roman Empire, it applies to us. So Paul's talking about work. And what is it that he says to Christians who were slaves? Perhaps surprisingly, even offensively, I think, to many in our day, the sin condition that Paul addresses in this passage is not the institution of slavery itself, which is where our minds would first go, most likely. Rather, Paul addresses the sin condition, the sinful attitude and behavior of slaves, their disrespect, their laziness, their insubordination. That's the issue he's addressing here. And so nobody gets out from under this word, this admonition, and the grace that God gives in this passage. This is important enough to pause and give some parenthetical comment on before we get into the heart of the passage, because I believe there's a lot at stake, not only in what this text says, but in how we handle it. One of the most effective attacks that the, the, an unbelieving world has launched against Christians in our day is to simply point out that the Bible permits slavery. And that's used as an argument to say, therefore, whatever moral claims you make based on God's word are irrelevant because the Bible permits slavery. So you believe that homosexuality is wrong because the Bible says so? Well, doesn't the Bible also permit slavery? And in their minds, that's checkmate. Game, set, match. It's over. The Christian can't say anything else. And if we reply something like, well, that was then and this is now, we actually lose the entire argument because you could do that with any verse in the Bible. That was then, this is now, it no longer applies. And you just work through and you pick which parts of the Bible you like, which ones fit in with your moral reasoning, which ones you want to apply and which ones you don't. And it's no defense to say, as I've heard some argue, well, slavery in Rome wasn't that bad. Certainly, it was different than what we think of the transatlantic slave trade, which was based uh, almost entirely on racism, ideas of racial superiority and inferiority. That wasn't the, the case in Rome necess necessarily, but slavery in Rome still had its horrors and its injustices. So how do we answer that charge? I think this is a wise word from a pastor and author, Doug Wilson. He says, Christians need to learn the biblical way of avoiding problem texts. This is the way of a priori submission. That is, you start by submitting to all of God's word. Christians must recognize that they are under the authority of God, and they may not develop their ideas of what is right and fair apart from the word of God. We don't develop our moral standard and then come to God's word. We come to God's word, and we let it correct us, Wilson says, when the Bible is our only standard of right and wrong, the problem texts disappear. Or as a mentor of mine once said, there is no tension in the text. There's never any tension in the text itself. God's word is authoritative and consistent. 
back to Wilson. This entire issue of slavery is a wonderful issue upon which to practice. Our humanistic and democratic culture regards slavery in itself as a monstrous evil, and it acts as though this were self-evidently true. The Bible permits Christians in slave-owning cultures to own slaves, provided they're treated well. So you're a Christian. Whom will you believe? End of that quote. So that's the reality. That's true. The Bible does permit slavery. And when Paul addresses Christians who owned slaves in other epistles in the New Testament, he says things to them like Colossians 4.1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In fact, the New Testament book of Philemon is a letter that Paul wrote to a Christian slave owner named Philemon, urging him to receive back his runaway slave Onesimus, who had been converted and become a brother in Christ. It's a bit troubling to us that Paul didn't just say, set your slaves free. However, slavery under God's law, we should be clear, was strictly limited. It was radically different than the slavery that has appeared in any culture on earth. Slavery has been present in every society on earth in some form or another, and outside of God's laws, it's always full of evil and injustice and oppression that is offensive to God himself. The very first command that God gave to his people Israel regarding slavery, the very first commandment, Exodus 21 verse 2, first commandment, he set a time limit. After six years, you shall set your slaves free in the seventh year. In Deuteronomy 15, he specifies that when those slaves were set free in the seventh year, they were supposed to be sent out with a starter kit for a productive life of self-sufficiency. Send your slaves out with all that they need, food and wine and money, and let them go because now they've learned how to work responsibly. God's laws about slavery were actually a gracious expression of care for the poor. Under God's law, kidnapping and trafficking slaves was strictly forbidden under penalty of death. And we should expect that wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ goes on earth, the institution of slavery, which still exists in the world, will be gradually eliminated. This is because all slavery begins with slavery to sin. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. That's not just an abstract metaphor. Jesus means that when he sets people free from slavery to sin, that freedom works its way out into every other area of life. And no society discipled by the gospel can preserve the institution of slavery for long. So the way to deal with this text is not to pretend like it's not talking about slaves, but to acknowledge that God cares about the attitude and the effort of slaves. And if God cares about that, then he cares about your attitude and he cares about your effort and the work that you do. Whether you're a child under parents who have chores for you to do, or a student under teachers and professors who assign work to you, or you're an apprentice or an employee or a manager, even if you're self-employed or stay-at-home mom, at times you find yourself under the authority of someone else. And the claim that this text lays on your life is that God cares about your attitude and your effort. Those are the two things we're going to explore here. First, Paul commands all Christian slaves, look at verse 1, must regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. To regard is to think of someone in a certain way, to consider them honorable, to count them worthy. So that has to do with your attitude. Second, Paul commands Christian slaves in verse 2 to serve all the better and to render good service. That calls for effort. So I'm going to take those two in part. First, regarding your attitude. Here's the truth. 
God calls you to honor those who are above you. That's it. It's that simple. If you were to sum up the nature of relationships within the household of God, the church, in one single word, my guess would be the word at the top of your list would be love. That, that's the word that should come to your mind at the top of the list. That describes the nature of relationships in the church. It's the second greatest commandment. It sums up the entire law. Jesus said the world would know we're his disciples by our love. But there's another word that should describe Christian relationships, and that word is honor. In fact, honor and love are closely linked because honor is a specific expression of love. Romans 12, 10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. When you show honor to someone, you are loving that person in fulfillment of the law. 1 Peter 2, 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. So those two concepts are closely linked. Honor is the thread here in 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 6, 2 that ties all of these topics together. In 5, 3, Paul said, honor widows who are truly widows. In 5.17, he said, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And now in 6.1, speaking to slaves, let all those under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Honor is the theme of this section of First Timothy. So what is it? Honor is an outwardly observable expression of how much you value someone. It has to do with value and worth. And when you esteem someone, when you consider them valuable, worthy, you treat them in certain ways. Just like you might value a pair of shoes more than the ones you mow the lawn in, you treat them differently. And that comes out in our relationships with people. It comes out in the respect that we show. All honor in the household of God begins with the honor that Christians have for God himself, the one who is supremely worthy, infinitely valuable, John 5, 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That's where all honor in the household of God begins. We honor the Father. He is the head of his family. We bear his name. We honor him. That's where it starts, but it works out in all of our other relationships as well. In fact, honor fulfills the fifth commandment. Exodus 20, verse 12, honor your father and mother. The Westminster Catechism asks, who are meant by father and mother in this commandment? And it gives this answer. By father and mother in the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, but all superiors in age and gifts, and especially such as by God's ordinance are over us in place of authority, whether in family, church, or commonwealth. That means any sphere of life, anyone who's over you in authority, the fifth commandment applies to how you treat that person. So God intends for children to learn and to practice the fifth commandment in the home. That's where it starts. That's where you learn it. But you don't ever outgrow it. It's not like it was only needed for those first 18 years of your life. And once you leave the home, you will never need to honor anyone again. No, you learn it there. You practice it there with parents who love you and are committed to teaching you to obey this, and then you go show honor wherever you are in life under the authority of someone else. Honor is the opposite of the attitude that Paul forbids in verse 2 when he commands that slaves must not be disrespectful. That's a present tense command which implies that some of these Christian slaves who were members of the church in Ephesus were 
already acting this way. Paul is not addressing a hypothetical problem. He knew that there were Christians in Ephesus who were acting this way. And so he says literally, stop disrespecting, stop scorning, stop despising their masters. But that's not all this text says. It gives us reason which motivates us. Why does it matter whether or not Christians honor those who are above them? Look at the reason in verse one. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So there are two things at stake in your disposition toward superiors. God's own name and the teaching. God's name is God's reputation, his renown, his glory. Paul is here citing Isaiah 52, 5, which says in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, thus says the Lord, on account of you, my name is continually blasphemed. That's the same Greek word here translated as reviled. My name is continually blasphemed among the Gentiles. The teaching is the doctrine of the Christian faith, the gospel message. And it appears that there was some misapplication of the gospel going on that was producing this disrespectful, insubordinate behavior in these slaves. They were thinking, since our masters are brothers in Christ, we don't have to respect them. And so masters, what are they going to conclude about the gospel? The gospel teaches these slaves to be disrespectful and insubordinate. The fact that God's reputation, God's own name, and the gospel of Jesus are at stake in the attitudes that we show to those above us in the work that we do points to this massively important reality. You, you've heard that statement, that line, no man is an island. You don't exist as an island in isolation from other people. We, we are not so much separate, disconnected marbles who all happen to be in the same box. We are in community like leaves growing on the same tree, connected to the same sap, the same life source. There is a connection between people in community. God deals with human beings corporately. He deals with us covenantally. One way to think about this, to understand this, is to think of a, a football team, a basketball team, where every player on the field wearing that jersey represents that team. And so if the left tackle commits a holding penalty, the whole team is penalized 10 yards. When you bear the name of Christ, you belong to the household of God. You are covenantally connected with other members in one body, under one head, Jesus Christ. And that covenant connection and the representation that it entails flows in two directions. As your representative head, Jesus took your place. He took responsibility for your sin. He bore your sin and suffered the wrath of God reserved for you. And that's the good news of the gospel. And now, connected to him, saved by grace in him through your union with him, you bear the name of Christ. And so collectively, we as the household of God wear his jersey. Or in household terms, as members of the household of God, you represent the head of the house all the time. In everything that you do, you represent the head of the house. So if you're lazy, disrespectful, if you're dishonest or stubborn, you bring reproach to the name of Christ, which hinders the mission of the church and damages our witness in the world. And so the honor that you show to those who are above you has a missional purpose to exalt 
the name of God, that his name would not be blasphemed and reviled, but worshiped and honored, that the gospel would not be reviled, but that the gospel would be believed and treasured as true. So here's the question. Do you honor those whom God in his wise and gracious providence has placed over you? Do you respect your boss or teachers or the mayor or your coaches or fill in the blank? Do you consider those people, and their faces and names might be running through your mind, do you consider those people worthy of honor? If not, if you struggle with that in any area, any relationship, what should you do? Well, here's the the gospel remedy. First, you should confess that to God as sin, your disrespect. Don't go to God with a list of that person's faults and flaws, though they may be many. Go to God with your sin of disrespect and dishonor and confess that to God. It's sin because God commands you to regard those over you as worthy of honor. And yet it's forgivable because Jesus took responsibility for your sins. And after you confess that, then choose, resolve by God's grace and with his help to honor and respect your boss, which I understand may feel impossible. You might think that person is not honorable, not respectable, doesn't deserve it. But here's how it works. You are to regard that person as worthy of honor because God calls you to, right here in 1 Timothy 6, 1. Think of it like this. Uh, Some people, it's easy to show them respect and honor because we do already feel some, we value them, we regard them. But value can be objectively set as well. Think about it like paper money. The government by fiat declares this bill is worth $100. You can crumple it up, cover it in mud and dirt, and it's still worth $100, even if it doesn't look very presentable. And that's the same thing, same way here. God calls you to honor and respect those over you, not because of something they've done, but because God tells you that person is worthy of honor. Listen to Romans 13, 7. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. So you can actually look at a harsh boss, an incompetent boss, and honor him. He's worthy of honor, not because you feel like he is, but because God said he is. And so honor never comes from what we feel or from that person in authority over you and what they do or don't do, but it comes from what God says. So the only question is, will we trust God and obey him? And then Paul addresses the effort that we show. And he calls you and me to work generously for the good of others. In verse two, Paul zooms in on a specific group of Christian slaves, those who have Christian masters, believing masters. And he says, those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So evidently, some of these Christian slaves in Ephesus, they they were committing a non sequitur in their reasoning. They were starting with a premise that was true, but they were arriving at a conclusion that was not true. They were starting with this idea, our masters are brothers in Christ absolutely true. And they were taking that as a reason to be disrespectful and insubordinate. The premise is true. Paul says in Galatians 3.28 and plenty of other places in the New Testament, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There's no male and female for you are all one in Christ. And so these Christian slaves were thinking, hey, if we're all equal, why do we have to show them 
any deference or regard as though they were over us. The premise was true and correct. The application was not. And so Paul corrects that by saying, rather, here's the conclusion you ought to come to. Since they are brothers, they are believers, they are beloved, rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So he corrects their reasoning and he calls not only for an attitude of honor and respect, but for effort, even better service. Now, that's a big deal when you remember he's talking to slaves in the Roman Empire. Slaves cleaned out latrines. Slaves did backbreaking work in the fields and building uh, buildings, working in mines. Paul doesn't differentiate here between sacred and secular work. He doesn't say some work is important and valuable, some work is really fulfilling, those people should work really hard and everybody else should do a different job. He just applies this to everybody. Whatever the work is that you do, no matter how uh, insignificant you think it is, render even better service, work even harder. That's what Paul calls for. He, He broadly affirms the value of work period, and calls Christians to do their work well. And here's where this gets really interesting. Look at the end of verse 2 again. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. That phrase, good service, translates the Greek word euergesia. It's It's a noun that means the doing of good. But it was a word that took on a technical meaning in a society that was, uh, had this idea of patronage and honor. L- listen to one commentator who explains, in the cultural context, the good deed, euergesia, it was an act of benefaction done normally, get this, by a person of some means and influence. It was a work done by the benefactor for someone else who was socially inferior, for which in turn, the benefactor would receive honor in the form of public recognition. So the benefactor is the backer, the sponsor, the donor. Think T. Denny Sanford. That person is the one with their name in the paper, the one who is honored and recognized because of this incredible generosity done for those in need. And Paul takes that word, euergesia, this good deed done by a wealthy benefactor, and he tells slaves, when you work hard, you are the benefactor. You are the one giving generously to someone else in need. He flips it around, applies it to slaves. When when Christians work hard, they do so, this is the application of the gospel, they do so as those who are free in Christ, which means nobody takes anything from you. Everything you do, even if it's in response to a harsh demand from an unreasonable boss, you give it freely because you are free in Christ. And because you give it freely, it's so generous that Paul puts it in terms of benefaction. You are giving generously to someone else. And in this way, you imitate Jesus, who said in John 10, 17 and 18, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down in my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Then you read the account of the crucifixion. It sure seems like Jesus had his life taken from him, but he tells his disciples ahead of time, don't be deceived. Don't miss this. I am willingly laying down my life, even when I'm bound 
and falsely condemned and executed. And all those who are in Christ by faith, united to him, share in the same joy of being able to lay down our lives in self-sacrifice for the good of others. Nobody takes our lives from us. We lay them down willingly because Jesus laid down his life for us and showed us what love actually is. And so here again, the remedy is repentance and faith. If you've been lazy, half-hearted, or sloppy in your work, confess that to God first. Then confess it to your boss and trust God to supply you. Trust him. He will supply you with all that you need to work diligently, excellently, carefully, productively, and then resolve by God's grace to do that because Jesus has set you free and his grace now abounds to you. And out of the fullness of his grace, you can give generously. So may your respectful attitude and your generous effort increase and abound for the glory of God and the good of others, that the name of God would be exalted and worshiped and that the gospel would be believed to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Only your grace could change us, change our hearts and our attitudes when we feel like it's impossible. Only your grace could produce in us such honor in regard for others. Thank you for your word, which, sh- which shows us what it looks like to love people. Help us, O oh God. Have mercy on us for our sin where we have been disrespectful, where we have been lazy. God, let your transforming grace sanctify us so that our lives and the work we do would itself be a witness that adorns the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which you have entrusted to your church, your household to hold out to the world. Be exalted in us, we pray. Amen.